You are listening to the Midtown Church Podcast, a ministry that exists to make Jesus known. What we've been doing on these Sundays is been praying specifically uh, for these different aspects. So thus far, we've prayed for our love for God and our love for one another. Today, I want to pray for our love for our neighbors. So would you join me as, as I do? Father, on this Father's Day, uh, no, no more appropriate thing to do than to come before you uh, boldly but humbly because of your son and lay our requests and our worship and our adoration before you. You're a good father. Uh, that sadly is not always the case here on earth. Good fathers, I'm thankful for the many good fathers here, but I also realize that uh, sometimes fathers aren't good, they're not present, um, and they haven't set the greatest of examples. And so I thank you that that if, if that's been the case for some of us, we have a, a, a good heavenly father who in comparison, even the best father here on earth is evil in comparison to you. And so I thank you. I, I also understand on days like this that these days are sad for some because uh, dad's not here anymore or perhaps they want to be a dad and they haven't been able to either because they haven't been able to have children in a marriage or perhaps they aren't married yet. And so it's a sad day for some. And so I thank you again that you're a good father and we can come before you. And, and, and our Heavenly Father, this morning we want, we want to pray. We want to pray for our love for our neighbors, our neighbors in this community. I, I pray that, that you would further our opportunities to befriend this community, to love on this community in very tangible ways that we'd make the gospel known in both word and deed, and that we would see people in this community come to know Jesus. Uh, Father, I also pray that, that all the churches in this city that love you, um, that aren't ashamed of the gospel, that proclaim Jesus as the only way to you, that you would do the same, uh, that you would expand their opportunities in the communities that you've put them, so that their neighbors, too, could come to know Jesus. And, and, and Father, for us as a, as a group of individuals that make up this body, we live next door to people. We have friends and relationships. Um, and I, I pray for the same for us, that you would deepen our passion, our desires, and give us greater opportunity, again, to love our neighbors as ourself, um, that we would see lost come to be found, um, that we would see maybe the ones that have declared a relationship with you in the past who have walked away, that they would return and that they would receive your grace yet again. And so I, I pray, for, pray for that. And I, oh, Father, as we go forward as a ministry, yes, please do a thing in us. Use us in this, in this place for this time. It's not an accident that any of us are here. So I, I pray for this. Thank you for this. In the great name of Jesus, amen. Lots to do today. Um, uh, I got a lot of points. I'm just forewarning you. I uh, got a lot of text. Uh, we're in the last, second to the last week of this series. Uh, I've bit off a lot here, and so I'm going to do the best I can, but just um, buckle up because here we go, okay? Our text begins, if you put your eyes down in verse 7, 
begins with the phrase or the statement, the end of all things is at hand. Later in verse 17, Peter writes, for it is time for judgment to begin. The end is at hand. Judgment is to begin. He was obviously wrong, right? I mean, this was written about 2,000 years ago. So obviously he's wrong. He's mistaken. And yet, he's not alone in this kind of language. John, in his first epistle, he actually even whittles it down further, and he says, it is the last hour. And Jesus says more than once in Revelation 22, I am coming soon. So Peter is not alone, that's my point. And Jesus himself sort of gives this idea. Things are gonna take place, things are at hand, things are near, things are happening soon. How do we deal with it? Because if, if Peter is simply wrong, like some people suggest he is, then what else is he wrong about? Right, can he be trusted? And, and how does that jibe with with the belief that the, the scriptures, the Bible, are Holy Spirit-inspired and are inerrant and infallible and can be trusted. Well, let me see if I can help. First, some things we need to know. When the New Testament writers speak of the last days, or as John writes about it as the last hour, most often they are referring to the church age, the age that Jesus ushered in, when he began his earthly ministry with repent, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is at hand, same language that Peter uses. And so in that sense, we've been in the last days for the past 2,000 years. Secondly, what we need to know is that word end, really important word, the end that you see in verse seven is the Greek word telos. And it doesn't speak of finality, it speaks of fulfillment. In other words, there isn't going to be an end of all things as much as a consummation of all things, meaning the kingdom that Jesus started 2,000 years ago and continues to grow now will be here in totality and forevermore. As one author put it, you could read this, this word end of all things, as the goal has been achieved. That's why the book of Revelation, by the way, begins in chapter 1 with John writing, Behold, Jesus is coming with the clouds. Not will one day come, is coming, present tense language, meaning his coming has already begun. And yet third, in trying to help us figure this out, I also believe that Peter felt that Jesus could return at any moment. Which, which is what Jesus calls us to live in light of. For example, I'll give you a longer text on the screen behind me. In a parable regarding this, Jesus says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service, have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, 
Blessed are those servants, but know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. Then hear this. This is the most important. Because some of it could be confusing. Just listen to what Jesus says at the end. You also must be ready. For the Son of Man, means Jesus, speaking of himself, is coming at an hour you do not expect. During the earthly ministry of Jesus, the disciples were really fascinated with end times. Um, And Jesus taught on end times. Uh, Here and there, the most prominent, something called the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. Uh, Really, Matthew 24 and 25 is a Coles Notes version of the book of Revelation, essentially. But in Matthew 24 and 25, he talks about end times, and the disciples are hearing this, and more than once they ask Jesus, when is this going to happen? What's it going to look like? What should we look for? And Jesus was always consistent with his answer. He said essentially three things. One, there are things no human being should know, not even the Son of Man, only God the Father. That was one thing he always said. Secondly, however, there will be signs that you, look, you should look out for. In the same way that a sailor can tell what tomorrow's going to look like and whether sailing is going to be good, we should be able to recognize the sign. But then, and this takes us back to that last parable, but then he says, always be ready. Be ready. Live, live in readiness. Here's the question that we're going to answer today by God's grace, by going to this text in 1 Peter. What does that mean? What does it mean to live in readiness? Does it mean we should all quit our jobs, go buy a commune somewhere, right? Live in tents, look to the stars? What does it mean to live in readiness? Well, thankfully, that's what Peter answers. And he calls us in the first part of our text, verses 7 to 11, to focus on three things. So I'll give you those three things. And then the fourth, we'll look briefly, somewhat briefly at verses 12 to 19, because I'm going to pick things up there next week as we finish this series next week. So let's begin with the first three in verses 7 to 11. First, we are to guard our minds. The end of all things is at hand. Verse 7, therefore, This is what you should do first. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So he calls us to two things here. Self-controlled, sober-mindedness. Self-controlled is sometimes translated as sound judgment. You probably see that in some of your Bibles. It has the idea, the big picture idea of being in the right mind. There's more to it, as I'll, I'll show you. But it speaks of having a proper perspective of yourself and of the world. Think of yourself rightly, think of the world rightly. Uh, Paul refers to this, in fact, in Romans 12, you can read it on the screen behind me, when Paul writes, therefore, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself, herself, more highly than he or she ought to think, but to think with, there it is, sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. As we talked about a while ago, think of yourself with soberness. Don't be impaired, right? Don't be impaired like alcohol can do to you. Think soberly, correctly, rightly. 
But tied to this, this call to be self-controlled has the idea of guarding your minds, fixing your minds on spiritual things, renewing your minds by way of the word. Why is that necessary? Because we're living as exiles. And, and we're bombarded every day, every day, by, by a world that calls for self-indulgence, not self-control, self-centeredness, not sober judgment. So be self-controlled. Sober-mindedness, the second part of this first call, is closely connected. And it's something we saw back in chapter 1, verse 13. Hang a left. Go back to verse 13 of chapter 1. Remember that uh, gird, gird your loins message I gave a couple of weeks ago? In verse 13, Peter writes, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, there it is, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's said the same thing there that he's saying now. Jesus is going to be revealed. He's coming back, so be sober-minded. Anytime you're in a letter and the, the author repeats himself, take notice. It's important. This is a call, this second part, sober-mindedness, is a call to be alert and watching, to, to fight against a- apathy, to fight against conformity, uh, to be spiritually observant. Uh, don't walk through life sleeping. Spiritually speaking, be aware, be watchful. Jesus speaks to this in Matthew 24 when he says, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is is coming. And Peter writes, going back to our verse, that we should be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. A couple weeks ago, I skated over some verses in the beginning of chapter 3 because I took a bit of a detour and I focused on men and women and husbands and wives. But one of the verses I skated over, verse 7 of chapter 3, Peter writes there, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Why would I ever go back to that verse? <laughs> I have a choice. Why would I go back? Weaker vessel? What it, weaker in what way? Intellectually? Of course not. Emotionally? Different, not weaker. Spiritually? No, co-heirs with Christ. So weaker in what way? Physically? Maybe? Generally speaking, women are weaker than men physically, although some of you, I'm sure, could take me, I guess. (laughs) But I don't even think that's what he's talking about. I think what Peter's talking about is women are weaker in that culture from a status standpoint. Women in that culture were second-class citizens. Couldn't bear witness in a court of law, couldn't divorce their husbands, although their husbands could divorce them with with a piece of paper. And what Peter is saying here is, look, man, you don't live in that kingdom. You live in God's kingdom. And in God's kingdom, you're co-heirs. 
So, so even though in, in the kingdom here, you could treat your wife poorly, not in this kingdom, man. And he says to them, look, if you're treating your wife poorly because you're taking your cues from this kingdom, don't think that your prayers are going to be heard. That's what I think Peter's talking about. In fact, it reminds us, it should remind us of the beginning of the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah, the prophet, God says through Isaiah, the prophet, you know, you're doing a lot of sacrificing, you're doing a lot of praying, you know, you're doing a lot of fasting. God says, I don't hear any of it. I don't consider any of it because of how you're treating people, especially the orphan and the widow. So God's counsel through Isaiah is repent and start treating the orphan and the widow right. And then I'll consider your prayers and your fasts and your sacrifices. I think that's what Peter is doing there. But with all that being said, I don't think that's what Peter is doing in our verse. Chapter 4, verse 7. I think the sense here is that if you aren't guarding your heart and mind and saturating yourself with the word of God and meditating on good and true things, don't, uh, don't expect your prayers to be effective prayers. Not because you're not praying, perhaps, but because you're probably not praying with the mind of Christ. To put it bluntly, if all day long you think like a pagan, read like a pagan, take pagan things in, you're probably going to pray like someone who doesn't know Jesus. You, you can tell a lot about a person by how they pray. And so often our prayers are simply about getting the things we want and getting rid of the things we don't. As, as one of my favorite people puts it, so often when we pray, we simply cast our idolatry heavenward. And I think sometimes that's why we get frustrated that seemingly God doesn't answer our prayers. But let, let me share something with you. He's a good father, and he will never give us our idols. He won't do it. So guard your minds for the sake of your prayers because the end of all things is at hand, number one. Second, we are to express our love. Look at verse eight. Above all, really important phrase, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. We saw this earlier as well in chapter one, verse 22. Look at it. I'll read it for you, just to prove it to you. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So if you're getting the sense that guarding our minds and loving one another earnestly is important to Peter, yeah, I think you're probably getting the point. But I want you to remember the context. Peter is writing to exiled Christians living in what is today modern-day Turkey, he is writing, therefore, to the church. Those are the one another's he is, he is referring to, and he says to the church, to exiled Christians, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Do you know that the call that we have to love Christian to Christian is even greater than the love we are to have for our neighbor? 
Let me prove it. And that's not to downplay our love for our neighbor. First and greatest commandment. Love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We aren't to love our neighbor like that. We aren't to love ourselves like that. People today do love themselves like that. They love themselves with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's why Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy that one of the signs of the end of the age is people will be lovers of self. Now, we are to love our neighbors as ourselves, but our love for ourselves, which isn't a bad thing, is to flow out of a proper love for God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. So, love God that way, love our neighbors as ourselves, but that's not how we're to love one another. Jesus tells us how we are to love one another. We are to love one another as Christ has loved us. John 13, 34. Our love for our neighbor, which is vital, flowing out of that first love, is to be a benevolent love. Think Good Samaritan. Our love for one another is to be a self-sacrificing love, the love of Christ. And do you know why that's so important? Because when we love one another like Christ loved us, our neighbors will know we're disciples of Jesus. Please hear me. I'm not downplaying any of those things, especially our love for our neighbor. What I'm trying to help us see, because I think we miss this in the church, and I think this is why Satan is so glorified when the church doesn't get along. We are to elevate this. It's our greatest apologetic. I took you to a verse a, a few weeks ago where Paul kind of infers to this um, in Galatians 6.10 when he says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. So there it is, everyone, no exceptions. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. That's the church, as Peter brings up in verse 17 in our text. Going back to our text, the phrase above all refers to the supreme importance of this in the church. And don't miss that word earnestly. It, it speaks of maximum effort, fervent. It burns hot. And as I said a couple of, or probably a month ago when we were walking through chapter one, it's not a sentimental love necessarily. It can have sentiment, it can have emotion, but it doesn't rest on it. It's volitional, it's purposeful, it doesn't rest on feelings, it gives regardless, it loves. It's a love that loves even the hard to love. But here's the thing, and now I'm speaking to those of you who listen to me midweek, don't come here, download the podcast. Believe it or not, people do that, crazy. I'm speaking to you right now. You're listening to me. It's a Monday or a Tuesday afternoon or a Wednesday night. You're driving in your car. You're sitting at Starbucks. You're watching online. Hear me on this. It is a love impossible to express if you aren't part of a local church. And know those in the local church. 
And hear me, I'm not talking about church attendance. Lots of people attend churches and don't love one another earnestly, don't know one another. So they can love one another. Because if we don't know one another, we can't love one another earnestly. It's also a love that covers a multitude of sins, if you go back to our text. What does that mean? Well, lots of debate. Some people say, well, this refers to the love of God that covers our sin. I, I don't agree with that. I agree with the idea, I think, but I don't think that's what Peter is after here because he's directing us towards the church. So uh, instead, what I think this is, it's speaking of a love for others that chooses to overlook another's sin and imperfections. I, I lean this way because, again, Peter is writing to the, to the church, and I just know that where love abounds, offenses and imperfections are quickly forgotten and overlooked. But hear me, that doesn't mean we ignore sin. I'm not saying that. We're imperfections because we want to grow in maturity. What I'm saying is those sins and imperfections that show up in the church don't end the relationship. Why? Because we love one another earnestly. And it covers it. It's also a love, if you look at verse 9, that extends beyond those you know. Show hospitality, Peter writes in verse 9, to one another without grumbling. What is hospitality? Well, Here's my definition in context. Hospitality is a tangible expression of volitional love that extends to strangers. It's a love that goes beyond our circle of friends. If all you have over to your house for lasagna, or I have no idea. You can tell I'm going off notes when I say stuff like that. If, if you have people over your house, only, only people that you know, that's not hospitality in the fullest sense. It's great. It's great. It's more fellowship, though. Hospitality is having people over that you don't know for the sake of getting to know them and loving on them. That's hospitality. Um, the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews 13.2, famously says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. If you've ever had me over for dinner, you've uh, taken care of an angel uh, unaware. <laughs> yeah. Does this refer to non-Christians? I've heard people say hospitality refers to evangelism only or to non-Christians. Does this refer to non- Sure. But not only, because remember the context. The context is show hospitality to one another. He's talking to the church. That's why this summer we're having something called meetups, M-E-A-T-ups, meetups where you're going to sign up, if you want, and host people and eat meat. And if you don't eat meat, that's okay. You can, I don't know, tofu up or something. Um, but we meet up, hang out. And my encouragement is, yeah, I know it's uncomfortable at times to have, like, all brand new people, but maybe a little bit of both. Get to know some people, one another. Um, that's hospitality. 
But Peter adds, going back to our text, that there's the act of hospitality and then there's the spirit of hospitality too, that we are to show hospitality without grumbling. Um, obviously, this speaks of our attitude. Uh, this is Peter saying, don't do a good thing in a bad way. Um, don't, don't be so... Don't be a person who is more centered on the act of hospitality over the person you're being hospital, hospitable to. And the whole thing is, think Martha. Mary and Martha, very hospitable. A lot of grumbling and complaining. Have you ever wondered, by the way, before we move on to the, the third point, why hospitality is so important, especially in the New Testament? I mean, I, here, it's written here. I just took you to a text in Hebrews 13. One of the qualifications of an elder is that they are to be hospitable. Why, why is it so important? Well, I think one reason is because it, it allows for the building of community and friendship and encouragement and we need that while we live in exile. I mean, the word hospital is in the word hospitality. And I think Peter, what Peter is saying to us and why it's so important in the New Testament text is when you have people over, maybe they're going through hard times, hanging on by a thread, going through trials of various kinds, feeling hopeless, and they need to be reminded of the firm hope that is theirs. And you have that time eating your lasagna, being able to encourage them in that. I think that's one reason. It's the beautiful picture of the one another of the church. But a second reason is because I, it, it expresses in very tangible ways what, what God has done for us. It's a picture of the gospel. Jesus invited us in and fed us, free of charge. And not because we were friends, but in spite of being strangers, even worse. And third, another reason, is because we're to remember that what we do for a stranger, we do for Jesus. In that Olivet Discourse in Matthew 25, Jesus says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. The third thing we are to focus on because we live at near the end of all things, and because it's at hand, is we are to use our gift. Uh, let me look at verses 10 and 11 with you. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as, the one, who, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Uh, my wife, Nicole, gave a, uh, a pre-launch Bible study on spiritual gifts weeks and weeks and weeks, lots of study. I'm going to teach you on spiritual gifts in three minutes. Here we go. All right. 
So I encourage you, or <laughs> I forewarn you that there's a lot more than what I have to say. But let me do it really quick. One, first thing to know about spiritual gifts, all of us have one. All Christians have a spiritual gift. Each has received a gift, verse 10. In fact, you may have more than one. Um, for a layout on what some of the gifts are, I encourage you this week to read 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12. Secondly, they are gifts of grace. They are an expression of God's varied grace, verse 10. Um, in fact, the word gift and grace in the Greek have the same root word, charis. The word grace is charis. The word gift is charisma. Charisma. Charismatic. Charisma literally means grace affected. It's a gift of God's grace to us, which means that when we use our gifts, we extend God's grace to others. As I've said, we're conduits of grace. Third, gifts have a twofold purpose. We are, we are to use them to serve one another, and we are to use them to glorify God. This is the third one another in just a, a few verses. We're to love one another, be hospitable <laughs> to one another, and by way of our gifts, serve one another to the glory of God. Fourth, gifts can be grouped under two categories, speaking gifts and serving gifts, teaching, tongues, prophecy, speaking gifts, examples of them. Giving, helps, mercy, or example of serving gifts. A couple more. We are to not rely on our gift, but on the power that God gives. God works through the gift. I may have a spiritual gift of teaching. You can argue with me. But that can't mean I rely on the gift, but on the God who gives me the strength. Why is that important? So that God is glorified and not me. And last, and to this last third point, I should say this major point, we're to use it. As each has received a gift, use it. Steward it. Don't bury it. And age can't be an excuse. If you're a 12-year-old Christian, you have a spiritual gift. Use it. If you're an 80-year-old Christian, you have a spiritual gift. Use it. Steward it. You've been graced. Extend the grace, is what Peter tells us. And why is that? Why is this so important? Because it's tough to live in exile. And God has put the church together as he wills to help us in the journey. In fact, most often that's how God works and helps us. Through one another, by way of the gift and the empowerment that he gives us to help and serve one another. So where are we? We've got a few minutes left. The, the end of all things is at hand. So guard your minds, express your love, and use your gift, and last, suffer well. This is encompassed in verses 12 to 19. As I said, I'm just going to prime the pump today. Um, I'll double back and I'll hit this more and leap forward and finish things off next week. Uh, this isn't the first time. This is the theme of 1 Peter. 
hope in the midst of suffering. This isn't the first time that Peter has addressed the topic of suffering. But, but what does he tell us here? Let me give an, a handful of things and then we'll respond and, uh, and go out and enjoy the rest of the day. The, the first that Peter tells us in, in this last paragraph is that, that we should expect suffering. Verse 12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. See, the reality is, Midtown, if we live lives of righteousness, if we're not ashamed of the proclamation of the gospel, if the glory of God is our greatest aim, we will encounter fiery trials. And Peter tells us, don't think it's strange. Don't think, don't think it's strange if, if you're eye-rolled. Don't, don't think it's strange if you're mocked or you're ridiculed. Don't think it's strange if you lose your job. Don't think it's strange if your family divides. Don't think it's strange. Don't be surprised. To some, we will smell like life and to some, we will smell like death. But praise God, for we all triumph through Christ. As Paul writes in Romans 9, the same sun melts wax as hardens the clay. To some, the gospel message of Jesus is sweet. And to some, it will lead to hatred. Don't be surprised. Secondly, we should rejoice in our suffering. Verses 13 and 14, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Rejoice in your suffering. But to be clear, we're not to rejoice in the suffering itself. We, we are to rejoice in what the suffering reveals and what it results in. Think Jesus in Hebrews 12, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Uh, what, what does the suffering we go through reveal and result in? Well, we read here in verse 12 that suffering shows whether our faith is real or not. It tests us. We also know that to the degree that we suffer, we will receive proportionate reward when Jesus returns. It's also by way of our suffering that we're matured and receive God's loving discipline. The fiery trials that we go through remove our impurities like fire does to gold. But, most importantly, <clears throat> we're also to rejoice in our suffering as you look at verse 13. For when we do, we literally share in the sufferings of Christ. The, the sufferings of Christ here isn't speaking of our salvation. It's speaking of our spiritual union with Jesus. <clears throat> Excuse me. When we suffer for the name of Jesus, we suffer with Jesus, and he suffers with us. Saul, Saul. 
Why do you persecute me? But he wasn't. He was persecuting the church. And he was persecuting Jesus. What you do to the least of these, my brothers, you do unto me. As one writes, being insulted for the name of Christ is a blessing for it places us in the company of Christ. <clears throat> Two more. We should suffer for the right reasons. Verses 15 and 16. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Keep that word in mind. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him, her, not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Um, real quick here. I think we can all agree that suffering as a murderer or, or an evildoer or as a thief, it's okay, right? If you're a murderer and you get sent to jail, appropriate. We get that. Not many murderers here, probably. Maybe if I keep going for much longer, it will last that. But here's the thing. <laughs> What's a meddler? Because it seems rather tame compared to a murderer. And I think that's the point. I think Peter is giving us a list and going, there are big things, but don't think just because you don't do the big things, you can get away with quote-unquote small things. You know what a meddler is? Somebody who meddles in things. Agitator. Pain in the butt at work. You know what I mean? That person. Not staying in their lane. Busybody. That's a meddler. And Peter says, don't be that. Paul writes this in, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 10 to 12. We urge you, brothers, sisters, to aspire to live quietly and, and to mind your own affairs. That's Paul's nice way of saying, mind your own business. Stay in your lane. Steward what God's called you to steward and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So we should suffer for the right reason. Lastly, I'll close with this. We should trust God in our suffering. Verses 17 and 19. For, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Let me just stop there. This verse kills me. What Peter is saying in this verse, and, and really I could read the next one as well, he's saying, look, God is working in our lives to refine us. And, and, and that's hard. And, and being a Christian can lead to suffering. And God uses the suffering to mature us. And, and he uses the suffering to discipline us at times. And it's hard Huh. <laughs> Man, this is why it kills me. But he says, if you think it's hard to be judged in that way by God now, how hard do you think it is for those who don't know God in regards to those, their judgment? Oh, man, this kills me. 
That's why he says in verse 18, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? We know. That's why we exist to make Jesus known. Because we know. Therefore, verse 19, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. It's tough, though, I know. Right? It's tough to suffer while you're doing good. It's tough to trust while you suffer. The enemy loves to hammer us, and that's why Peter ends this way, I think. He reminds us that it's to suffer for doing right is not outside of God's will, in spite of what some people in the church may say to you. And, and that God, the God you are called to trust, is not just any God, he's, he's your faithful creator. And, and thinking back to chapter 2, verse 20, 23, that in our trusting, you are following, we are following the example of Jesus, who when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges just, justly, which, which seems to be an appropriate way to close and, and respond to be reminded of Jesus. Because essentially that's what Peter has done in this passage. He, he tells us, because we're living in the last days to put on Jesus, the end of all things is at hand, and therefore love one another earnestly as Jesus loved you, and serve one another in the power and grace God gives in the same way Jesus came to serve and not be served for your sake to the glory of God, and be hospitable to one another, invite one another in, just as Jesus invited you, once his enemy now seated at his table. Jesus, thank you. And finally, suffer well as Jesus suffered for you and me, bringing us to glory. Would you rise as we respond, please, Midtown? Let me pray for us. Come when you're ready. Father, we love you desperately, desperately. Um, Jesus, you specifically have called us to live ready lives, and you've shown us today by way of the, the word that has been inspired and given to us by the Holy Spirit what we should give ourselves to. So empower us now by way of your spirit. Empower us now to be people who guard our hearts and minds, to be people who, who love one another earnestly, uh, uh, to, to be people who... Um, oh man, live in a way desperate to express um, our love that we have received from you um, uh, to, for and to one another, um, uh, to be people who use the gifts that you have given us um, by way of your Holy Spirit to serve one another and to glorify you, to help us in this journey of exile, a work could be very hard. Help us to, I pray, oh God, please help us uh, to suffer well. And we can't do that alone. We can't do that alone. We need one another. So I pray that we would be a body that comes along, alongside of others, one another, to help us in this journey where, yes, suffering comes. Uh, but huh, we rejoice that it is but for a time. And we also recognize that it's in our sufferings oftentimes that we make Jesus known. And we desperately here, again, want to make Jesus known to those who need to come to Jesus because there is a suffering.
coming that far outweighs anything that we go through. And I pray for these things. In the great name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Midtown, please go to mtownchurch.ca.